Welcome to Iroquois History Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb, and welcome to episode 19, The War of the French and the Seneca. Today we can kind of sit back and we can see our borders between Canada and America and we can see the reservations on a map. But there's a lot more to it than just cutting America down the Great Lakes to divide us between Canada and America. And some of the events we're going to talk about today are going to show how some decisions that the French made actually alienated them from the Seneca when they had an opportunity to actually become allies. But by attacking them, it actually drove the Seneca and the Iroquois into closer relationships with the English, which ultimately ended up landlocking the French in what we now know today as Canada. In our previous episodes, Caleb, we've been dealing with the Beaver Wars. We had talked about how the Iroquois had gone down into Pennsylvania and Maryland, and they've assimilated the Susquehannock. And then over the next 10 years into the 1670s, the Iroquois have done these little raids into Nanakuk and the Coney Indians, and they've incorporated them as well. Uh, Maryland finally makes peace with the Iroquois League in 1682. And during this time, the League is on its way to the zenith of its power. The Iroquois are getting very close to dominating almost all of what we know of as northern yep. America. So if, if you looked at a map of what the Iroquois either controlled or claimed hunting exclusive rights on at this time period in kind of the, the late 1670s, 1680s, this would be this would be Rome at its height, basically. We're not quite there yet. They're going to push a little bit further, but they're getting pretty close. And so today we have to talk about them pushing into the Illinois Territory. Now, today, Caleb, what when you say Illinois, what do you think of? I actually think of Monopoly. Wasn't there an Illinois? Illinois Avenue, yeah. yeah. I don't really think of much when I think of Illinois. I'm sorry for any fans. I really don't know anything about Illinois. Chicago's there. Well, that's right. Scruff, McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. Remember that? Yes, I do. Don't do drugs. Yeah, don't do drugs. But we are not talking about any of that today. We're talking about the Illinois area. There is a river called the Illinois. And there was also a group of Native Americans called the Illinois Confederacy. Now, when we say confederacy, don't think of it like the Iroquois League. This was a much looser confederacy. The Iroquois League was bound together, but the Illinois League, it's kind of just this loose conglomeration. They don't have any central decision-making power. And we're going to see, once again, this is really going to play into the Iroquois' favor, being how they are united. Because this isn't just a small tribe like some of these other ones that uh, the Iroquois have been assimilating and pushing over. They estimate at the time there was 20,000 people in this Illinois confederation. Yeah, so not a small number. Definitely a lot more than they presume are in the Iroquois confederacy at this time. The Iroquois are pushing further and further west. Do we know why, Caleb? Beavers. Beavers, furs, furs. trade, hunting grounds. Because as they push, they need to constantly expand the territory because there's becoming less and less beavers as they go. At the same time, while this is going on, the Illinois are also hunting beavers because the French are pushing westward because they're trying to get around the Iroquois Confederacy to get to these western Native Americans to open up new trade routes so that they don't have to deal with the Iroquois anymore. That's right. You basically have only had to worry about the Iroquois in western New York and some of Pennsylvania and maybe some of the eastern parts of Ohio. So the French, like Andrew said, they just basically sailed around the far end of the Great Lakes and then went down the Midwest all the way down towards Florida, Louisiana, and just tried to bypass them and have their own trade system like that. So it's kind of like an arms race, but you're just trying to see who could get west the furthest to get those lucrative trade routes. And meanwhile, the Iroquois are getting upset because the Illinois are pushing east, trying to connect with these French people. And the Iroquois are getting upset at the Illinois because they claim that the Illinois are killing all the beavers. They claim that they weren't taking only male beavers. They claim that they were taking female beavers, too, and it was decimating the population. That's true. I'm not sure if we pointed this out, but there was a common practice where... Just like today when you hunt, a lot of people only hunt for the big bucks and they'll let the fawns go. And for a while there was this practice where you take the adult beaver and you leave the young beaver. But you're going to see because the market gets so lucrative, everybody just starts killing any beaver they can find no matter how small it is. 
which works really good at first, but then all of a sudden the beavers are basically extinct. Mm -hmm. This puts the Iroquois and the Seneca and the rest of the Confederacy into conflict. Therefore, the Seneca decide to form this massive war party, and they decide to head out west to start to teach the Illinois a lesson that they're not going to forget. On the way, they pick up western allies, predominantly the Miami. Yes, these are the Ohio Miami, not to be confused with the Miami, Florida people. I thought they were the same. I thought they just named that after... No, totally different, even word origin. Totally different. Good to know. So, you know, there's a University of Miami and there's a University of Miami in Ohio. They're named after the Miami people of Ohio. Anyway, the Seneca and the Iroquois pick up these guys on the way because they're arch enemies of the Illinois. So, hey, let's work together to fight the Illinois. So while these conflicts are starting to heat up between the Illinoisan and the Iroquoian peoples... Somebody else just so happens to once again find themselves in the middle of it, and it's the French pushing west, and it is an explorer named La Salle, a Frenchman that came from a very, very rich background. Uh, he decides to open up a, uh, a trading post slash, you know, fort in uh, central Illinois, Illinois. territory. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, he's an explorer, and he's actually a very well-renowned explorer because this is actually the guy that works his way all the way down to Louisiana and actually names it after King Louis the Fourteenth. I think. One of those Louis. I think it was King Louis the Fourteenth. So, you know, this guy is actually the one naming these places that we still know today. As he's working his way down out of Illinois, he takes the majority of his men with him, but he leaves a dozen of them behind. Not many. A few. And these dozen guys hear rumblings that there's an Iroquois invasion on the way. Yeah, they think that they've gotten around the Iroquois and they can work with these this other nation, but all of a sudden now they're starting to hear through the grapevine, oh, guess what? The Iroquois are also working their way here and they've got a huge war party on the way. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned that the Illinois Confederacy is made up of many nations, or uh, you could call them nations, maybe even tribes is a more appropriate term, very loose groups of people. So some of them hear that the Iroquois are coming and they say, all right, we're moving across this Mississippi River. We're not risking it. But uh, about three of them decide to stick around. What do you think happens to them, Caleb? They die? They die. (laughs) I'm sorry. By the time the French explorers come back through, they find the entire valley littered with bodies and burned villages. Thousands of Illinois have been killed or captured. Several years later, in 1681, they came back to an Illinois territory again, and the French had built another fort called Fort St. Louis. If you may have heard of St. Louis, this would be it. Um, It was a huge new stronghold, and the Iroquois came up to it, and they pretty much had to turn around and head back because it was a rather more impressive place. Within a couple years, the population around St. Louis had grown to like 20,000 indigenous peoples, all coming there to trade and use it as protection. The Iroquois tried to invade again and again, but they were kind of repulsed. With with this many people conglomerated into one place, it was very hard for them to do anything. Especially when you have a a French trade route right through the middle, so they're obviously supplying them with firearms and other goodies Mm -hmm. that can slow down the Iroquois in advance. So the French are getting really big-headed now. They're thinking, okay, we have finally stopped the expansion of the Iroquois now. Um, The Haudenosaunee are no longer a problem for us. And so the French decide that they're going to form this alliance against the Iroquois. They're going to get all the Iroquois enemies together, and they're going to take them out once and for all. There's a governor in New France at the time called Lord Frontenac, and he decides to build a fort. What we would know as just at the tip of where the St. Lawrence River goes from Lake Ontario into the St. Lawrence River, Caleb, and he names it after himself, as all good people do. Well, Frontenac really wasn't managing New France very well internally, domestically, and he was recalled, and then this new guy came in, and his name was Labar. And he had the same idea, to form an alliance and take out the Iroquois. And as we've seen from the numerous French invasions that have happened over the years, Caleb, what could possibly go wrong, right? You've got to remember, I mean, this seems like it happens every single time you get large amount of men and people together in a small confined area and this is a general's worst nightmare you had to worry about this in the french and indian war you had to worry about it in the revolutionary war you had to worry about the civil war and what we're talking about is influenza mm-hmm. and other diseases we had mentioned before that the native americans were very susceptible to diseases 
But the Europeans died of disease very often as well. Not at the same rate as Native Americans, but if disease ripped through, you could lose dozens and dozens and hundreds of people in a camp within days. Today, you know, we all get the flu. A lot of us get the flu every year. But we, we kind of don't appreciate how serious the flu can be when you don't have a warm house with three square meals a day and plenty of clean water to drink and somebody to take care of you when you have it. Picture being the sickest you've ever been in your life, but being out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of winter. And mom's not around. And mom's not around. The wife's not around. You are getting small rations and dirty water to drink. I mean, sometimes you'll see people lose half their army when these epidemics hit. He assembles a force of about 1,500 men at Fort Frontenac, and he's got a huge plan. He's going to move all these men out, and he's going to strike at the center of Iroquois. He's going to take out the Onondaga capital city, and then his men are incapacitated. But Labar decides to bluff. He realizes he's in a horrible condition, but maybe, just maybe, if he convinces the sachems that He's got a huge army that's about to attack. Maybe the Iroquois will make peace and give concessions. And so he arranges uh, to have a council with the Onondaga leaders. And here's what happens. Labar gets in the council and informs them that he will be formally declaring war if they did not stop hunting and fighting in the West. Now the Onondaga chiefs sat there and listened to him talk. And then when he was done talking through the interpreter, one of the Onondaga chiefs named Garangula got up and decided to give a reply. I see you, raving in a camp of sick men, whose lives the Great Spirit has saved by infecting the sickness on them. Hear me. Our women have taken their clubs. Our children and old men have carried their bows and arrows into the heart of your camp. If our warriors had not disarmed them and kept them back when your messenger Agusi came to our castles... We carried the English into our lakes to trade there with the Ottawa and the Huron. We are both free. We neither depend on you nor the governor of New York. We may go where we please and carry with us whom we please. If your allies be your slaves, use them as such. Command them to receive no other but your people. This belt preserves my words. Labar pretty much realizes that the gig's up. He realizes he's in no position whatsoever to attack them, Caleb. And he decides that, based on his ineptitude, it would be best if he packed up his army and went back to Canada. So the sachem not only says, basically, I know that you're all sick, but he says, I could have come in and killed all of you. Not only does he say that, he says that, whether it's true or not, he's implying that the women and the children could come in and wipe out this army right now. <laughs> and our, our lovely, honest warriors had to hold them back because they brought clubs and, and bows to go wipe them out because you guys are so pathetic right now. Don't even bother threatening us. We're a free people. We're not under your thumb and we're not under the English's thumb. We're a free and open people. We can trade with whoever we want. Leave us alone mm -hmm. and get the heck out of here. Labar kind of panicked. And seeing that he had failed so miserably, he was worried about a counterattack. You know, the Iroquois could march all the way into Canada now, knowing how weak they are. And so Labar panics, and he signs a treaty with the Iroquois, and in the treaty he gives them claim to all the Illinois territory. Now, if we know a lot about history, the Europeans are always doing this, laying claim to territory, because they've gone in and planted a flag somewhere or put lead tablets down somewhere claiming this territory. Well, the French are relinquishing all the control all the way to the Mississippi River. Do you know how vast a territory that is, Caleb? That's hundreds of miles beyond where the Iroquois currently have control. And so now the Iroquois are saying, French just relinquished their claim. We control all the way to the Mississippi Valley now. I get why he did this, because he was afraid. But I have a feeling that the King of France isn't really going to like getting this report back that... Uh... The governor he sent there has just relinquished thousands of miles, thousands of square miles worth of land, millions of square miles worth of land. Yes. And so news gets back to France. I wouldn't say quickly because it's got to cross an ocean and the message has got to cross back. But you're exactly right. Uh, the king is not impressed and he immediately <laughs> fires Labar and replaces him with another guy. And that gentleman's name is Jacques-René Dinonville. 
Now, fortunately, Caleb, the French are very honorable people, and they realize that they've made a treaty with the Iroquois Confederacy, and they're going to honor what they did, ceding all that land to them, and they're not going to bother the Iroquois anymore, right? Not a chance in hell. <laughs> not even a little bit. They totally ignore the treaty that they've made, and the king just replaces him with another governor, and this governor this time is going to take care of these troublesome Haudenosaunee people. He's not going to fail like everybody else has failed. He's got something to prove. He's just been given this huge promotion, basically, and the previous head coach has failed, uh, so he feels like he's got to try extra hard to be twice as tough Twice as violent, twice as ruthless. Because this year we're making playoffs. Yes, Denonvo wants to make playoffs. Sorry, Andrew and I were uh, Buffalo Bills fans. We live here in Western New York, and our team was just knocked out today. So um, it's hard not to picture this as like a football team right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the French fit the bill of the Buffalo Bills perfectly because <laughs> the best laid plans tend to... Well, you're going to see what we're talking about. So Denonville makes these plans in 1686... But he wants to keep them super secret. He doesn't want any of the five nations to find out what's going on. He doesn't even tell his army what's going on. He keeps this so secret. Um, he orders farmers to start growing huge crops of peas, Caleb. But he doesn't explain to them to not sell them. <laughs> so, so what happens, he tells them all, okay, everybody has orders to grow this much crops. All the farmers grow that many crops, the harvest season comes around, they harvest them all, then sell them all at the market. So Denonville, who is planning this campaign, plans on having all of these resources, and he goes to claim it, and all the farmers have sold all the food they've grown. Because he never told them yeah, that he needed because it. Because he never said, I'm going to need all this food come next fall. So right from the start, he's starting to have some logistical problems. Mm -hmm. uh, he also secretly orders inside buildings to construct 400 flat-bottom boats. Uh, you may hear them called bateaux sometimes. Regardless, he scrounges up enough food that he thinks he's going to need. And in June 1687, Denonville and his lieutenant Pierre de Troyes set out with a well-organized army of 1,700 soldiers to Fort Frontenac, which, as we mentioned, is the new fort they've built at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Now, 1,700 men, that doesn't sound like a lot to us in, in our modern militaries, but this is actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, the largest army ever assembled in the New World, as far as Europeans. Yeah, once once we bring everybody together here, it's going to actually swell, and yeah, it's going to be larger than the invasion that we saw into the Mohawk Territory about 20 years before. We want to set this up. As we've said, Caleb, the Iroquois have been expanding over the last close to 70 years now, and they've kicked out the Huron, right? Predominantly, the Huron are just a remnant floating around. Mm -hmm. And so many of the Oneida and Onondaga have established small trading posts, colonies, and hunting grounds on the north side of Lake Ontario, very close to Fort Frontenac. And some of these Oneida and Onondaga people are actually quite friendly with the French because they're in close proximity to Fort Frontenac, so they bring stuff to trade there. They're neighbors, and so many of the people that are garrisoned there know local people from the villages, and they've made friendships. And they don't know that anything's going on because Denonville has kept everything secret. But then all of a sudden, Denonville shows up with 1,700 people, and some of these people that predominantly go to visit Fort Frontenac to socialize and trade, they see an army show up. And Denonville says, what are they doing here? And they say, well, they, they live right here. They've been trading with us. And so Denonville says, okay, well, you know, let's, let's just trust them and let them go on their way. Denonville doesn't want to take any chances is what it boils down to, and wisely, because I think that pretty much as soon as they got out of earshot, I'm sure they would be sprinting down the road to tell their relatives in other towns that there's a huge army assembling down the road. So he basically puts them under house arrest, or at least tries to put as many as he can under house arrest. It's actually a little worse than that, Caleb. Um, he doesn't put them under house arrest. He captures everyone he can find in the local villages and in the rounding area and he sends the women and the children back to montreal which is several hundred miles away uh to make them household slaves and he takes some of the men and sends them in a boat across the atlantic ocean to be galley slaves uh for the french navy yeah i guess that is worse than being put under house arrest Denonville totally defeats the point of what he was trying to do, though, because you can't just round up everybody in a village and think that word's not going to get out. 
people escaped. And they went down Lake Ontario, and they went to Onondaga and Oneida, and word spread. There's a big freaking army coming, and Denonville just captured hundreds of our relatives, and we don't know what's happened to them. we got to get ready. And so the word's already out that the French army's coming somewhere at some time soon. There's also some records that some of these men that he actually enslaved could have even possibly been some of the 50 sachems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's conflicting accounts. In one telling, it says that he captured all 50 sachems of the governing council. I find this highly unlikely because why would they all be over there at this time? And it seems like that he was surprised when he saw the people come. So it's more, in other records, it doesn't say that it's sachems. It just says that it's people from the local village. And I tend to believe that more. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel like if he did capture all 50 sachems can you picture you know being here in america if somebody just captured the entire house of representatives and the senators and all the the federal government employees i feel like there would be no chance of ever reconciling that with that with a country and not only that you wouldn't send them overseas you'd hold on to them because they're much more valuable as hostages Mm -hmm. whatever it is though Denonville has played a dirty trick here. The thing is, it's good to see that we have journals from some of the French soldiers, and many of the French soldiers wrote in their journals saying how they did not agree with what he was doing. Uh, We have a quote from one guy. His name was uh, Baron de la Houghton, and he was an army officer that wrote back, and he said, the captured enslavement of these people is extremely unjust. You know, Europeans with other Europeans tend to have a code of honor. And they are not using a code of honor here when they're dealing with these people. And the soldier calls him out on it. He doesn't call him out enough to tell it to the governor's face, but he says it enough to write back home about it. Uh, There's another problem that's going on while all this is happening, Caleb. And one thing Denonville didn't take into account, he kept everything so secret that we mentioned that a lot of the Jesuits are working in the Iroquois nations at this time still. That's right. So picture there's Jesuit missionaries working in Onondaga, and then all of a sudden, you just hear that the French have declared war on you again. They're sending an army, and they've just captured several hundred people. Yeah, and enslaved you know, some of your friends and family. So what's obviously going to happen to these poor Jesuits that are there working as missionaries amongst the Onondaga and the other nations? Um, fortunately, um, the, the main Jesuit that was working in Onondaga, his name was Father de Lamberville. And he was actually very popular in the town he was working in. The, the sachems really liked him. The, the different leaders liked him. But when they found out what had happened, you know, they assumed that the Jesuit was a spy or something. What do you do to a spy? Yeah, I, I'm sure that the majority of the population would want to do the same thing to him that you know, their enemies did to them. But he had some friends in the village. So what they ended up doing is actually sneaking him out, saying... Okay, I like you, but you can't be here. Because we don't want your blood on our hands. They were really worried about the young people being enraged about what was happening. The older people had the cooler heads, and they said, please tell us that you did not know anything about this. And the guy said, I did not know. I'm not a spy. And they believed him, and he was true, because Denonville didn't tell anybody what was going on. And so they snuck him out, gave him a canoe, and a couple days later, he met up with Denonville's army, because they were just across the lake. That shows a lot of restraint on the elders sparing this guy's life. And it also shows that the the Jesuit had enough uh, respect amongst the people. Mm -hmm. Now, while Denonville is forming and getting his men ready at Fort Frontenac, he sent his lieutenant named uh, Detoni west. And he's rounding up all the Indian allies he can. He's going all the way out to Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, and rounding up Ottawa's and... Remnant Hurons and Mississaugas and every other type of person he can find that want to come. In addition to that, he's also got some Mohawk coming with him. You may be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Mohawk? Why are the Mohawk coming to invade the Iroquois territory? What's up with that? Do you remember back in our episode on the frozen Frenchmen in Fiery Fields, Caleb? Mm -hmm. You remember how they forced some people to relocate up north? Yeah, to be kind of hostages near uh, Canada. Well, some of these people have been living here, and the French kind of nudge, nudge with the end of a pointy stick, saying, 
yeah, we could really use some guides. And since you guys are such loyal friends, we think it would be a good idea if you were to come along. And it'd be really unfortunate if something happened to your families while you were gone if you didn't come with us. Oh, really? Yeah. And so they round up some of these Mohawk to come along with them. Now, there were two leaders, possibly, that are very famous that are coming along. Uh, the first guy, he's known as Kryn. And this guy was actually, um, he's going to come into our narrative later, he was actually a very enthusiastic Francophile. And he was all gung-ho for the French. He had converted to being a Catholic Christian, and he was totally loyal to the French and wanted to help them on this journey. There's conflicting records, but it is possible, although it's some, in some places he's here and some places he's not, that our old friend uh, Flemmy is coming along too, Caleb. The Flemish bastard. The Flemish bastard he is back. Keep, he just keeps turning up, doesn't yep. he? Yep. And so there's conflicting records on whether he came or not. Um, some records they say he did. Um, this will be the last time we're mentioning him, though, because this is the last um, alleged shadow of him being around. But he's been around a while. And so the Flemish bastard is also up here leading some Mohawks coming along. Just because the Mohawks are coming along, Caleb, and they're being forced to go with the French doesn't mean that they're not going to play a part in helping undermine what's going on. You know, that, that's exactly right. When you, have a, when you have Native Americans working with your army, we see that they almost always work as guides and scouts. They're always going ahead. They're either leading you or they're going ahead to make sure it's safe. So you're having Mohawks <laughs> who are allied with the people you're about to attack going five miles ahead of your army to find out where you're supposed to go. And so every time Denonville winds up getting close to somewhere, for some reason nobody's there. Here's what happened. Denonville sails down Lake Ontario and he lands at Arondequoit Bay near the modern Seabreeze Amusement Park in Rochester, New York, on July 10th, 1687. As they're getting set up, all of a sudden, the army of native allies that he had sent his lieutenant out to find earlier in the year, they show up the exact same day, nearly an hour after they land, Caleb. That's like a logistic miracle. That does not happen. Mm -hmm. That they would arrive at the exact same time. And they looked at it like it was a miracle. They looked at it like it was a really good omen. Yep. Yeah, the Christians that are really superstitious are thinking, oh, God's on our side. We're going to take out these savages. And the natives that are with them are like, oh, this is a great sign from the, from the great spirit. This is meant to be. This is great. And so I've got the list here. This is who has come to a mass. So his total force size is 832 colonial regulars as well as 900 Canadian militia and 400 Indian allies, bringing the total over 2,100 people. So this is a massive force. And as we mentioned, again, the Mohawks and other people are coming along as well. After they've make, set up their makeshift fort, they've left a garrison there to make a beachhead so that they boats are safe when they go. And then they start heading south. Now, if you look on a map, Caleb... Rochester and the Irondequoit Bay is promptly north of Seneca Territory. So we can tell right now that we know that they're not going for Onondaga, they're not going for Oneida, they're going for the Seneca. And the Seneca at this time are known as the most warlike people, and they're the ones that are the pushing west the furthest because they're the keepers of the western door. So they think if they crush the Seneca, they can cut off all the trouble they're making out west to the Iroquois, the Mississippi, and the Ohio. That's right, because all of the beaver pelts coming from Ohio in the west are coming through Seneca. So if they can put a wall right here down from Rochester down to the Pennsylvania border, they can basically cut the entire trade for the Iroquois nation off, and then they can't trade to get any more gunpowder, any more guns, any more goods, which basically makes them... Inept. Yeah, that's That was the plan. Now, there's an added problem. They're heading down to the Seneca Nation, but the problem was, Caleb, the main body of the Seneca Warrior Army is not in Seneca Territory right now. That's right. Just like how we were saying, they're having these conflicts with the uh, Illinoisan Indians out west. A lot of the fighting Seneca men are out on western campaigns for goods and glory. And so right now, it's the middle of July. The harvest hasn't really come in yet. There's a little bit coming in. But predominantly, the men are out on the warpath. And so who's going to defend all of the Seneca towns? The biggest one is what we call today Ganondagan. 
And that's right around Vic- the Victor, New York area. Mm-hmm. They had another village a few miles south of there in what we would call now East Bloomfield on Wheeler Station Road. And then they had another one in modern-day Lima and another one in um, Hanoi Falls. So if you're looking at these on a map, it's basically you know kind of a triangle-type, square-type shape that's only about 25 miles from one to the other in a nice little box. Mm-hmm. Now, the chief capital city was, we're just going to call it Ganand again. It was called by different names back then, but that's the current name, so we're just going to keep it at that and keep it simple. The Seneca did not know which town they were going to strike first. There were two towns, one where we're going to say Honeyoy Falls is, and one where we're going to say Victor Ganand again is. And the trail splits as they're walking down Rochester. So they would be walking right down in the city of Rochester this modern day, and the trail splits. And so they have Seneca people out ahead scouting to try and see which town they're going to go to because until they know where they're going, they can't amass what remaining forces they have left to meet them. And they finally see them take the left trail, and so they know that they're going to Ganand again first. So now that they know where they're going, they send runners to the Seneca villages, to the other five nations, and they send runners west to Illinois country coming to tell everybody where the French are headed and come quick. Meanwhile, back at the main town, they hold a council, Caleb, because you got to hold a council and find out what to do. They pretty much had two choices. Do they head to their Fort Hill and wait for reinforcements, or do they attack the army while it's on its way? Now, when you think, how many people are actually living in this village at the time? Ganandagon was a very large village, and it had anywhere between 150 and 200 longhouses, which means that the population could have been four or 5,000 people when everybody's there. Say a, a quarter of them are gone on campaign. You still have thousands of people in each of these villages. You'd think that they would be able to you know, put up a defensive front against 1,700 Europeans coming in. Uh, but realistically, you've got children, you've got old people. The, the warriors that are gone most likely took all the guns that they had, so there's, there's not much left. So, like you said, they're putting this, this choice. Do we pin ourselves up tight and wait for reinforcements and pray they come in time before we get burned out? Or do we try and attack them? Mm-hmm. And to set up the terrain here, Ganondagan is on Bowton Hill. It's a very large hill, and so you can see stuff coming. But they have another hill that's really, really steep. It's almost like a small mountain. Um, And that's called Fort Hill. And that's where they would store all of their corn and grain. And it was a palisaded, they called it Fort Hill. It was a fort that they kept all of their food that they were storing for the winter. Tons and tons of food. And they're thinking, well, we can use this as a citadel for a strong thing. So do we all hold up there and make a last stand and wait for people to come rescue us? Or do we try and ambush the French army? And they decide, let's go for the ambush. The number of people they finally get together, they get 450 young and elder Seneca. So we're talking, yeah, like 13, 14, 15-year-old boys, and then old 60, 70-year-old men. And then they also got five women who wanted to come along. Um, Women generally did not deal with warfare, Caleb, but put in a spot, they could be just as efficient soldiers as the men. Remember, the women are part of this decision-making process. And so if the, if the five women say they're going to come and fight, well, let them come and fight because they're the ones in this council making the decisions of yeah. what's going to happen. Also, when life and death is the option, I don't think anybody's going to argue, no, this is men's work because <laughs> they need every hand they can get. And so these five women said they're not going to leave their husbands and family. They're going to die with them fighting. They send out scouts to find out how much time they have. Meanwhile, other women, they get a few women to go out in the fields and get them to start working tilling the soil. And you may think to yourself, why the heck would you start working on the fields when there's a French army coming, Caleb? I'm going to guess a distraction. Exactly. They sent some women out to the fields and had them joyfully singing and playing along so that when the French scouts came, they could say, oh yeah, they have no idea we're coming. They got women out in the fields working. They have no idea what's, what's about to happen. Meanwhile, there is a hill called Fisher's Ridge that is just outside of the village of Victor. It's about three miles from the city of Ganandagan. And on one side, you have a swampland, and you've got kind of this ridge that comes down running by a creek. And so that's where they're going to set their trap. Fortunately... As we mentioned before, the Mohawk are 
coming along and they're kind of dropping hints as to what's happening, Caleb. And one of the hints they drop is they said, um, so get this, Denonville has asked all of us to tie red scarves around our heads so that he can tell who's a friendly Indian and who's a Seneca. So they run back to their villages and you guessed it, they put on red headbands. <laughs> the, the 400 and such and such warriors that are about to lay this, this trap uh, open fire as his men are walking through around Fisher Ridge. And uh, they end up seeing everybody with wearing headbands. Basically, a lot. Uh, Denonville ends up shooting a lot of his own men. Yeah, pretty much. The problem with the Seneca was they were not very experienced. And as soon as the French showed up, they fired on the leading of the column. What you want to do in an ambush, if you were a military tactician, is you want to actually let the column get about halfway through. And you shoot into the middle of the column. And that throws everybody into confusion. And then you can shoot wherever you want. Also, you never have your high officers at the start of the column. They're always in the middle or in the back where they can coordinate with the whole caravan. Mm-hmm. So if you can wait to the middle and shoot a lot of the officers, you can send them into chaos and confusion. And there's actual drawings of the battle array that Denonville drew up. And wouldn't you know it, in the exact middle shows him marching. Now, this is the middle of July or the beginning of July, Caleb, and it is hot as heck out. And Denonville is marching, and it is so hot that Denonville has taken off his clothes, and he's marching around in his boots and underwear. Here, here's the really funny thing, Andrew. I know that he was walking in his underwear, but you've, you've heard of the term of the wigs, right? Yes. At this time, people would wear their wigs to show, you know, their, their station. You know, mm-hmm. the richer you were, the higher position you'd have, the more ornate wig you would have. So not only is he walking in his underwear, but he's not going to ditch his wig because that shows his, shows his station and shows that he's the governor of New France. So he's walking in his underwear, but he's still wearing his powder wig <laughs> yes. while he's doing it. And wearing these big old uh, huge boots while he's doing it, carrying a sword. <laughs> yeah, It just sounds like the most hilarious thing. Again, the problem is a lot of these Seneca people are not experienced. They're young people. Maybe they haven't even practiced firing firearms that much. And so they throw the French into confusion, but a lot of the shots totally miss. They don't fire far enough. And like you said, the French are thrown into confusion. They start shooting their own allies because they don't know what's going on. But pretty quickly, officers show up and they get a handle of the situation. And they figure out where the people are and they start firing back. And within a few minutes, it's over. Denonville claims that he lost seven men. That kind of sounds rather small. The Seneca um, historians say that according to their oral tales, they took out 100. The discrepancy might be that Denonville was only counting Frenchmen. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that uh, 40 of Denonville's men were killed and 40 of the attacking Indians were killed. But if Denonville's writing home, he's probably not going to write yeah. what the numbers so, really yeah, are. So yeah, he most likely probably just wrote seven Frenchmen were killed and didn't even bother to tally the Indians that he had fighting with him that got killed. Um, But the losses on the Seneca side were rather severe. Um, The Seneca lost probably 40 people and another 50 seriously wounded. Oh, wow. And so when you got a group of 450... One out of five have just been taken out. One out of five have just been taken out and another 50 are seriously wounded. And the Seneca, they're family. They're not leaving each other behind. These aren't strangers. These are friends, family that they've grown up with their whole lives. And so they're dragging and carrying. You know, if you've got somebody injured... It may take two people to get this person out. And so they're falling back and getting out of there. The attack was worthwhile, but it did nothing to stop the French. But it did for one day. After Denonville gets an order of everything, he decides to set up camp, and he's going to stop there for the night, and they'll pick the battle up in the morning. Well, the next day, they make that nice little short hike up to Nagandagan, and they're getting ready to fight this last battle, and they're going to burn this town. And they get there, Caleb, and there's a big pile of black ashes. A lot of big piles of black ashes for the whole village. The Seneca had realized that uh, they couldn't stand up against this force of the French. And they knew that the French would come in and basically use their home and their food to rest in. So they figured, they're going to burn it anyway, so we'll burn it ourselves. Not give them the satisfaction. It doesn't say how much they were able to flee with. Don't know what they were able to grab. But the main body of the civilians of the town fled south, down to the south end of Canandaigua Lake, and some others went over to the Cayuga Nation. 
And Denonville was pissed. He was not happy. Because he felt like... He, he, it doesn't matter that their village is burned. I mean, that was his ultimate goal. But he wanted to be the one to do it. He felt like he was robbed of his victory. So he's so angry that he goes out and he starts ordering everyone to burn all of the fields and the storehouses that are filled with crops just to spite them for doing this. But he doesn't have the French people do this. He orders all of the Indian allies to do this. What he doesn't realize is this is something that kind of even taps into the spiritual aspect of the Iroquois. Because they believe that corn and beans and squash are a gift from the earth. They be- they're the three sisters. They're the three sisters. And all these different nations, even though they're enemies with the Iroquois, they still follow the three sisters' teachings. So they don't quite understand being ordered to burn crops. They're like, we're here to wage war on people, not, not the three sisters, not this gift that the Creator has given us. So it starts to make people feel really uncomfortable. And they actually start making fun of the governor. They say, we did not come here to make war on corn. And some of the Indians refuse to do it. And others say, we're out of here. We're done. We're not going to get any action fighting. Why are we here? Denonville thinks, all right, well, we've got this one town, but there's three other towns that we're going to hit. So let's head out. And they head south, and we mentioned that this is the town down on Wheeler Station Road near modern-day East Bloomfield. The interesting thing about this town, though, Caleb, is this is a resettlement town. Like we talked about in some past episodes, when you would have other nations that would join the Iroquois, either voluntary or involuntary, both conditions happened, there might not be enough room for them in your village, but you still want to adopt them and make them part of your nation. So you would set up a a city just for refugees. It's the refugee city. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those towns. Yep. Um, They say that it could have had up to 17 different nationalities of different nations and tribes here. And the funny thing is, many of these are Huron and other northern Canadian nations, and most of these people here are actually practicing Christians. And so you'd think that the French would not bother them. Yes, because these are people that have been working with the Jesuits back when they were in uh, Canada, and now they're down here. They, They actually, a lot of these people probably even speak French. Not good enough. They realize that the army's heading their way, and they flee too. They end up having their village burned. It totally boggles my mind, because even if you got some bad eggs there, you'd think that there might be some people actually willing to even help you. But not after this. Then they head out, and they head to the other village, which is modern-day Honeoy Falls. They get there, and they find that that village is burned too, and then they head south down to the other village, which is modern-day Lima. And he heads over, and they get ready to take care of that one. But the interesting thing is about the Lima village, Caleb, is there's something on the wall there. Um, The English had given the Iroquois these, I guess you could call them seals or medallions or little shields to put up on their town. And the Iroquois didn't even know what it was. They just thought it was a gift. Put this on your town, and it'll help protect you. Okay, whatever. It was a seal from the English king saying that this village is under the protection of the English Empire. So any attack on this village is the equivalent of waging war on the English cities themselves. And so they find the seal there and they burn it. And so now, yes, they've in effect declared war on England. I wanted to touch really quick, Caleb, um, just on a side note, because in some of these villages, they actually found some very unique animals when they were doing this attack and raiding. Yeah, they even found an elephant. Really? No, but that would be pretty, pretty random. Yeah, and cool. But no elephants. <laughs> the cows, sheep, goats. <laughs> and pigs. And pigs, okay. And chickens. Th- these are some of the first records we see that some of the the Western farming techniques are actually starting to take hold in some of these Iroquois nations. Mm-hmm. And Denonville didn't p- let them go to waste. He decided to, everybody loves a good meat roast. And so they slaughtered all the animals and had a mighty fine meal. One other thing that the French did that kind of goes against everything from every culture. The French soldiers went to the graves around the villages and they started digging them up because a lot of times when people were buried in Iroquois culture, they were buried with keepsakes. And some common keepsakes at the time were silver coins, silver buttons, things like that. 
And so they started violating all of these graves, which did not endear the army to the rest of the nations or even the local Native Americans who were working with them. Denonville's just finding ways to step into the cultural insensitivity everywhere he can. On their way back up, they stop by one of the most lovely scenic places that you can find in uh, the Monroe County area, and that's Menden Ponds, which if you ever visit there, it's a lovely glacial formation, but they stayed there at those three wonderful little lakes. And then they headed back up. Denonville really wanted to start moving Caleb because he got the sneaking suspicion that maybe there could be an Iroquois army coming after him now. That's right. How, how many days has he been on campaign now? It's been over a week since he's landed. Been over a week, and they had runners as soon as they found, as soon as they saw the Navajo land in Irondequoit. Basically, he's thinking uh, there were. We haven't faced any actual armies yet, mm-hmm. so they've got to be somewhere. So we probably don't want to keep trying our luck. We should probably get our mission done and get back out of here. That's exactly what was happening. Runners had gone all day and all night, and they had made it to the other four nations, and an an entire confederacy of nations was heading towards him from all five nations. And they were so close on his heels that they got to back to Fort Denonville, if you want to call it that, on Arundequoit Bay. And they burned the fort and got on their little boats and were ready to sail. And then, wouldn't you know it, the army shows up right as they're sailing away. Uh, we don't know how big the army was but we're probably looking at thousands and thousands of people that have shown up all the way from over in mohawk territory so it would have been interesting if denonville had been napping one more day what would have happened to them all they could do was blow them air kisses as they sailed away but denonville did not sail back he had another goal in mind we mentioned that he's trying to cut off trade right caleb right and so he knows the most strategic point that he can build a new fort that will cut off the Iroquois trade. And that is what we would modern day call Fort Niagara. Now, Fort Niagara is right at the tip of Lake Ontario where the Niagara River goes in. And this is the gateway to get to all of the other Great Lakes and thereby pretty much get to trade all the way to the west. So would this be built by the portage? This would be right, it's the right on the tip of where the Niagara River meets the Lake Ontario coastline. So it's there to prevent the portage, yes. It's before the portage road, but it's right on the tip. Pretty much if anybody wants to sail a boat up the Niagara River to get to the portage, this fort's going to cut them off. So how close is this to the falls? It's several miles away. Okay. Um, But it's stopping all river traffic and all lake traffic, and it's going to stop anybody from getting to the portage because the portage is further up. So you're not going to be able to sail up to get to it, if that makes sense. We'll try and post a map on our website. And so with all these soldiers, yay, they get to build a fort. Wow, so much fun. Thanks, Denonville. So after building this new fort, which is, if you ever have a chance to visit it, it's a very impressive building. The original fort is just a blockhouse, but it's like three or four stories tall of brick and mortar and stone. And it's a pretty big building. And have you been there before? Yes, I have. I went this past summer with the family. We did a, a day trip. That's neat. So it was very nice. And so if you ever get a chance to look at it, the, the fort now is much more expansive because it's been in use for hundreds of years. But right now it's just a big block brick house, but much better than these other forts we've talked about at Fort Orange and Fort Nassau and all this. It's actually quite form- formidable. And Denonville leaves 100 men with his trusted lieutenant in charge and sails the rest of his army back to Canada. If you ever notice how the trusted lieutenant is always not really a very trustworthy person that always kind of ruins everything when you leave? At least that's what I've noticed from history so far. And I don't know anything about this guy, but I'm just going to go out there and take a guess right now and say that this trusted lieutenant's going to screw a lot of stuff up. This trusted lieutenant tends to screw some stuff up. So, the Iroquois know what's going on. Denonville's got his whole army there. And so they can't do anything about it. And now he's left and they've built this brick block house, stone house. And it's pretty formidable. Nobody's going to really get in there. But that doesn't stop the Seneca and other people from kind of hanging out around it and making sure that nobody can go out and forage and get anything. The men are there and the trusted Lieutenant de Torrey is not very well liked. 
I'll give you one story. It said that his men were trying to go out and get some hay to make beds for themselves. Probably don't want to sleep on a cold, hard stone floor. No, they didn't. They just wanted some nice hay to make a bed for themselves. But he insisted that the hay was not for the people, but it was for his pet. His elephant. Not elephant, (laughs) but pretty darn close. His pet cow. Yes, de Tori loved his cow (laughs) so much that he wanted to make sure that there was enough food for the cow to make it through the winter, and so the men could not have any of the hay to sleep on. Why they couldn't sleep on it and then feed it to the cow, I don't know. But his men were not happy that this guy loved this cow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I want to say that this is fake, but this is true. <laughs> Wasn't there a Caesar that loved his horse? Yeah, um, Caligula. Yeah. he. he... So... He might have been cut from the same cloth as Caligula. (laughs) So, you are not to touch the cow. Now, over the winter, some people kind of got sick and um, hungry. And our old friend Scurvy came to pay a visit. You know, that disease that makes you waste away and turn colors and have your teeth fall out and wither away and your organs shut down. And the people start dropping one by one because of disease. And... Now, when Denonville left this guy in charge, and he took the majority of his army back to Montreal, how many men did he leave with this lieutenant? 100. 100 men. Okay. So, the following May, when supplies show up to help refortify this fort, we have seven healthy men left and six people on death's door. Yep. 13 out of 100 left. Here's the question, though, and I don't see it in here, in these notes, but was the cow alive? <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to find out if that was the case, and I could not find out. Because if the cow was still alive, that would just make everything more hilarious. I'm going to guess that it was not. I'm pretty sure that they drew a line somewhere. It doesn't say, but I really see from the notes that he did like this cow. A valid point, Caleb, and maybe someday, if anybody out there works at Fort Niagara or happens to know, please write us and let us know if if you know the cow's name, did it have a family. Um, I can just see all kinds of merchandise that we could get out of this. (laughs) At this time, the Iroquois decides to go on the offensive. Yes, Denonville is now safely back in Montreal with the majority of his men thinks that the Seneca have been completely decimated. Yes, I didn't kill a lot of them, but I destroyed a ton of their farms and fields and houses. So he feels like, you know, I it was a pretty successful campaign. But this, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this saying, Andrew, and that's you've never defeated somebody until they've admitted that they've been defeated to themselves and to you. And they have not admitted defeat. Not at all. We had mentioned before that the Iroquois were able to harvest an ungodly amount of food, and they would save up up to three years' supply of it for emergencies. So when the Seneca show up to the Onondaga and Cayuga brothers that they have, they openly give them the food and a place to settle. And yeah, they've lost their homes, but they can rebuild them. And they're fed, and they're helped out, and they're coming back. Uh, There was a quote saying that, Um, We've broken into the hive, but the hornets are just angry now. The Iroquois decide to head up, and they're going to start with Fort Frontenac, that fort that we said was on the edge of Lake Ontario by the St. Lawrence River. And they lay a siege to it, and they blockade the St. Lawrence River into Lake Ontario. And the fort and settlement there is besieged for two months. And although they weren't able to destroy the fort, The settlement was so devastated that many people continued to die of starvation and scurvy. And so they pretty much neutralized the site. Then our good old chief, Grangula, he's the one that talked to the former governor, Labar, and gave him the tongue-lashing Caleb. Well, he shows up in Montreal to talk peace. Denonville, seeing that, you know, all right, well, now they've, they've put Fort Frontenac on the ropes. Maybe it's time to Just cut our losses and make a peace here. And so Denonville accepts the peace terms, um, but 
the Haudenosaunee want him to break off all trade and all alliance with these Western Indians. They want them, again, to focus on the Five Nations for their primary trade partners. And so Denonville is going to accept this. That, you know, that instantly kind of annoys me. You've got, say, the, these Huron and these other people that have been working the, with the French for hundreds of years, and Denonville is basically throwing them under the bus instantly to help save his standing and his skin because things are starting to not look good for him. And that's exactly how these natives feel. And so there's a Huron chief named Adario, and he finds out about the French plans to betray them. And so he formulates a plan. He knows that there's an Iroquois delegation heading up to Canada. And so he gets some of his guys together and they lay an ambush while these people are walking up. And, you know, it's pretty much over before it starts. They kill one person and then they've got them surrounded and force them to surrender. Uh, but the Iroquois are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, we're up here. We are ambassadors. We're here to talk peace with the French. Yeah, nobody's supposed to touch us. We are supposed to have safe passage you know, you're allied with the French. You should not be doing this to us. And Adario says, oh, oh my, I had no idea. You know, I don't understand this. Denonville told us to come out here and attack you guys. That guy is a deceitful little liar, and we are going to have no part of his deception. So tell you what, we're going to let you guys go. Because we are just so disgusted that the Nonville would try to trick you guys and to get you killed. Because we don't play that way. Mm -hmm. Now, if you could do us a favor, um, a lot of the p young men that we have here on a war party, they'd like to at least come back with somebody to adopt. Because, you know, otherwise, you know, the people in our villages will be really disappointed if we don't bring anybody back for adoption. Could we arrange to have somebody as an adoptee from your people to come, and that would be great peace between us and you. What do you say? And they say, all right, well, we've got this Shawnee adoptee, and uh, he's looking for a new place, so he would like to go along with you, so we're going to send him. So Adario takes him, and they head back up, and they go all the way over to Fort, this is my favorite fort name, by the way, Michilimackinac. Michilimackinac is right at the Straits, you know where Lake Michigan, you know how... Michigan, the state, is kind of like a little mitten. Mm -hmm. And you know how it's got that upper peninsula that kind of jets over? Mm -hmm. Well, where the two touch, that little strait of water, that's where Michilimackinac is. Okay. So they go all the way back up there, and there's a little French trading post there. Well, when the people bring this adoptee there, they don't tell the French that he's an adoptee. They just kind of imply that, hey, we caught this Iroquois out here. He might be a spy. And the French officer says, what? And he brings the guy out and shoots him. We can't have any of that. And then the Huron talk to some other Iroquois that are prisoners there. And they say, wow, those French are pretty hard, right? They're real jerks. Tell you what, we like you. And so they free some of the <laughs> Iroquois prisoners that are there and send them back. So they've sown the seeds to show that the French can't be trusted, that they ambushed these ambassadors and... They killed an adoptee, which is, you just do not do that. This causes a problem, and for the Huron, they've done their deed. They've broken, they've gotten war back between the Iroquois and the French, and now the, the French will be forced to stay with them as trading partners. Denonville starts freaking out, though, because he really wants peace. And you know the old adage of the boy that cried wolf, Caleb? Mm-hmm. Well, what did Denonville when he do when he first invaded? He captured all these people and used them as slaves to send to New France and then over to France's galley slaves, right? And now, this is the kind of thing he's done before, and so we can totally see him trying to get our ambassadors killed. So we don't believe a word he says. Denonville is sending out people to try and get the Iroquois to come back to a peace delegation, but they never came. Imagine that. You know, you can only send your delegates up there so many times and have them one time sent into slavery on a galley and another time killed. And then when he calls for a peace council, nobody shows up. Yep. So, while Denonville's back in the new French towns, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the ambassadors to come back, on August 4th, 1689, in the early hours... The Haudenosaunee attack a 375-person settlement called Lichine. 
And this works as their direct revenge for Denonville coming through and burning their villages. They're going to do the exact same thing to these French villages and these French settlers. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like a, it's a town just outside of Montreal. So think of it more like a, a suburb. And they burned this thing to the ground. While the colonists slept, they surrounded the homes. They attacked. They broke in doors, windows. They dragged colonists out. Many were killed. Some of the people were barricaded inside the village buildings. And they set fire to them and waited for people to come out to flee the flames. So some sources, such as the Encyclopedia Britannica, claim that 250 soldiers and settlers lost their lives during the massacre. It also says that they probably took over 90 prisoners. Now, other sources say that only 24 people were killed, but a lot of people are really thinking that this was quite a big attack and destruction. And those that they didn't kill, they most likely took dozens or maybe even hundreds prisoner. So if you look at Denonville's campaign, yes, he burned a lot of villages, but did, did he ever actually have any casualties of his enemies other than that sneak attack on him? Basically, no, none at all, except for a few random people that he found along the way. But now, they've just lost maybe 250 people to being slaughtered, plus however many other hundred are taken as prisoners. Plus all the ones that have died of disease yes. during these campaigns. You know, and then you've got that other hundred men that got left behind and basically wound up down to six men. And well, they didn't stop or cut them off from the fur trade. So, Denonville is... Out of options. He's exhausted and defeated. And he doesn't know it yet, but before this Lachine disaster even happens, his replacement is already on his way. And the French are going to bring back an old governor, one that we really haven't talked about, but a guy named Frontenac, who founded Fort Frontenac. And the French king has realized that maybe it's time to bring back the old coach and see if he's got anything left in him. <laughs> So is that what we're going to talk about next week? Next time we're going to talk about Governor Frontenac and see if he can save France because right now it's looking like the French may just want to pull up and pull out because is it really worth our time and money? And will the Iroquois be able to survive? What's Frontenac going to be? Is he going to be somebody that the Iroquois can work with? Or is he going to be another genocidal maniac? If you recall in the start of the show, I mentioned how these attacks here may have shaped what we now know as America. At the time, the Iroquois, you shouldn't think of them as direct enemies with the French. The Iroquois, just like the chief said, they do what they want. They associate with who they want and they trade what they want with who they want. It's very likely that the French could have done things to win the Iroquois to their side or to at least split them and gotten, you know, half of them to never fully commit to the English. But in doing these attacks and coming down and burning all of these Seneca cities, this has now created something that will never truly be forgiven again. And we're going to see from now on, they are going to be basically blood enemies with the French for up until the Great Peace happens. So we've got several more years of war to come. So it's not unlikely to think with all of the Jesuit and Christian influence and especially the Seneca part of the Iroquois nations that that could have ultimately wound up as part of Canada today if it weren't for these attacks back in the 1600s. And it was the French attitude and the egotism too. Um, there's lots of letters that we have going back and forth between the French governors and the governor of New York. And the French claim Western New York as part of their territory. If you even look at old maps of what New France they claim, you look and you'll see it highlighted blue for New France, covering the Haudenosaunee territory. Like we said, the Haudenosaunee never said any of that, but the French said, well, we have Jesuits here, and therefore that pulls um, all of these Iroquois nations into our sphere of influence, and they're under our dominion. The New York governor wrote back and said, well, has France claimed Japan and China and India too? Because you got Jesuits working there. A little sarcasm on the mm -hmm. side. Just because you've got a few missionaries does not mean that you control these nations. So that shows a little bit of difference attitude that the English had versus the French having. So thank you, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Yeah, it's actually uh, 11.32 on Christmas Eve when we're recording this. On our last one, we said we were going to do everything we could to get this out to you around Christmas. So that's why we're doing this. 
if you could give us a Christmas present, you know what I want for Christmas, Andrew? What do you want, Caleb? I want our fans and friends to go on iTunes and leave a positive iTunes review so that we can stay bumped in the ratings. I don't. I don't know if that can happen on Christmas, Caleb. I feel like I'm going to not believe in Santa if they don't do it. Well, if you guys could please, if you could look at the face of Caleb right now, it, the tears are starting to swell behind his eyes. So please, go on iTunes and leave a positive review for us. Tell your friends, tell your family, subscribe to us on whatever podcast hosting site that you use. You can visit our website, longhousepodcast.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter and iHeartRadio. And if you did that, I might just be able to believe again. Don't do this for me. Don't do this for yourself. Do it for Caleb.